We are still in the book of 2 Peter. We're still in our prepared series. Uh, and 2 Peter, I'm just going to give you a very, very brief recap because we have a lot to cover today. Uh, but for the sake of someone who might be new or new to watching online, 2 Peter was written by, uh, to the same Jewish believers who were scattered throughout Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. Uh, and they had, they had scattered outside of Jerusalem because they were getting too much persecution from the Orthodox Jews. Uh, then when they got out into Asia Minor, which was mainly Gentiles, they found out they were still going to be persecuted, except now it was by the Romans and other uh, Gentile nations. Uh, so that's kind of what happened. Now, now first, Peter, first Peter was written to teach those people how to handle persecution, how to be successful through persecution and stand strong. But Second Peter, which was written between A.D. 65 and 68, right before Peter's death, it was, it was written to teach people how to handle false teachers, because there were so many false teachers. Uh, and the false teachers at that time really had a problem with the second coming. Some of them even had a problem with the resurrection. So they would teach these young believers that, yeah, there was a Jesus, and yes, yeah, some of that stuff's true, but there's just no resurrection, no second coming. So Peter had to teach them that uh, the greatest defense against lies is the truth. Now, that's all of the recap you're going to get. But there's, I, I just read a study that kind of shocked me, and I just want to see what you guys think about this. There was a study done that asked people if they believed in absolute truth. Okay, absolute truth. Now, it doesn't, you know, shock me, some of the results, but some of it does. Because this study included feedback from believers, people who claim to be born-again believers, and non-believers. Right? Now, not surprisingly, only 28% of the secular world believes that there is absolute truth. Only 28%. I guess that doesn't really shock me. What shocks me is only 23% of born-again believers said there was absolute truth. Now, that is a huge, huge problem. Have you ever asked somebody that says that, are you absolutely sure? You know, <laughs> you got to wonder. But, I mean, 23% of believers don't believe in that. I mean, that's all that believe in absolute truth. That, that blows me away. That means that 77% of born-again believers don't believe that you can 100% know something. They don't believe you can have absolute truth truth. And that's scary. And that means that like 76% or 72%, whatever it was, uh, of unbelievers don't think there's absolute truth. I just, I'm just praying that they at least believe that the promise of eternal life is absolutely true, because if they don't, they have a 100% chance of not making it to heaven and ending up in hell. So that's just, that just kind of shocked me when I saw that. So in verses 16 through 21, Peter discussed how God's word is the original source of absolute truth, and he's going to prove that. But he wanted his readers to be inspired by the fact that they could trust God's word. When they didn't know what else to trust, they could always trust God's word. So today, we'll discuss the facts that inspire faith and, and, uh, that Peter shared with him. So that's what I titled the message, Facts That Inspire Faith. Uh, and like Peter, you know, I just pray that people learn that you can trust the word of God. And it doesn't change like they say as the, as the years change. It doesn't get outdated. It is always absolute truth. So let's jump right in today. 2 Peter 1.16. There's a ton in here. I'm going to try to behave and stay close to my outline. Uh, but it says, 2 Peter 1.16 says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales, you might want to underscore that, uh, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, in verse 16, Peter compared what these false teachers were teaching, what their doctrine was, with the doctrine of the apostles and what he was teaching. Now, what's kind of neat here is notice that Peter never used the word I. He never used the word I in verse 16. Instead, he used the word we. And so what would he, who was he talking about when he said, we never taught you cleverly devised tales? 
the we he was referring to there was he and his fellow apostles. They were kind of the, the mainstay, the, the foundation of the, of the modern-day church, and so of the modern New Testament church. So he was saying, we never followed cleverly devised tales. Now, there's another we used in verse 16 uh, that's actually more specific about which apostles. If you look at uh, 2 Peter 1.16b, uh, the second part there, it says, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, a lot of people read that, and they say, well, eyewitnesses could have been all the apostles, right? But he says something specific here. He says, eyewitnesses of his majesty. He was talking about himself, James, and John. Those three specifically is who he's talking about, and I'll explain that more. It'll become evident as we go throughout the text why we know that. But uh, what did Peter mean when he said that they didn't follow cleverly devised tales? Cleverly devised tales. Now, the word translated cleverly devised in the Greek is the word sophizo. Sophizo. And it means the knowledge or ability to skillfully create or design something. It means someone who has the ability to create, basically, and is good at it. Okay? And then the word tales in the Greek, the word tales in the Greek uh, is the Greek word muthos, which is where we get our words myths or fables from. Okay? Myths or fables. Now, so this was Peter's way of kind of calling them out. This is Peter's way of exposing the fact that all that these false teachers were trying to teach was just myths. They were just myths and fables. They were just making it up. And not just any myths or fables, but myths or fables that are designed to distract them from the truth of the Word of God. These were dangerous myths and fables. Teaching that Jesus didn't, wasn't resurrected and is not going to come back, those are dangerous, and they were specifically designed to be dangerous. So you know who those false teachers were working for. It certainly was the other team. Now, the false teachers like Peter encountered here have always existed since the very beginning of time. I mean, the, the serpent in the garden was one of these false teachers. It has always, always existed, and they've always used the same tactics, and they still use them today. And what they do is they use just a little bit of truth that's familiar with you, enough to pull you in. And then when they pull you in and have you sucked into their web, they start to deceive and distract you from the real truth. And that's the way the cults still function today. They'll say, oh, yeah, we believe there's a Jesus, absolutely, and we believe that he was a good man. And, but then when they pull you in with their love and their kind words, you find out, that's not the same Jesus you believe in. They have completely created a myth or a fable to, de to deceive you, just like they did at this time. So it's really, really nothing new, but Peter still had to deal with it. Now, next, what Peter meant when he said, what did he mean when he said they were eyewitnesses of his majesty? Okay, here's where we answer that question, how we knew it was James and John and Peter he was talking about. Look at this again, 2 Peter 1.16. He said, for we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming, second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. See, he was saying that what he taught them, he and James and John had personally witnessed. They didn't get a second hand, right? They didn't read about it. What they saw here, they were eyewitnesses to what he was teaching them. Now, eyewitnesses have always been important. They have always been important in, in discovering truth and convicting the guilty. They've always been important. But the problem with eyewitness testimony is that it's notoriously unreliable. Okay, it's notoriously unreliable. And it can be unreliable because human perspectives can affect it, and, can, and they can affect it in many different ways. And let me give you some examples. Uh, fear can affect an eyewitness. Uh, prejudice can affect an eyewitness. Right? Those are two big things right there. General inattentiveness. I don't know about you guys, but... I'm not paying attention to much when I'm walking down the street, are you? I mean, I'm thinking of what I have to think about. Well, imagine now something happens like that, and they want you to be an eyewitness, and you were there, and you did see it. How much detail did you really see? 
you know, so there's the general inattentiveness. Uh, our emotional state, there's so many different things that can play in to make eyewitness testimony unreliable. But eyewitness testimony can be especially unreliable if there's only one eyewitness. If there's only one eyewitness, it's, it can be really dangerous. So Peter was trying to remind them, he was being sure to remind them that there were more than just him that witnessed this. That's why he said we. He said, you know, he was saying James and John and I all witnessed this. We were all eyewitnesses. We all agreed to the facts. Okay, very, very important. Right now, he said they eyewitnessed his majesty. Now, what does that mean? And it's really cool. He's making a reference here to something really, really powerful. Right? He explained it in verses 17 and 18. He says, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such as an utterance as, is, as this was made by him, by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son whom, uh, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. What's he talking about here? The Mount of Transfiguration. He's talking about we got to witness something so powerful on the Mount of Transfiguration that it removed all doubt from us. So let's take a look at that because this is, this is very, very huge what he's talking about they witnessed. So Matthew 17, 1 and 2. Let's jump to Matthew 17. It says six days uh, later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. There's the three right, uh, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured, underscore that, he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with them. <clears throat> so, this is what he's referring to when he said we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, the word transfigured here is really important. It's the Greek word metamorpho, which is where we get our word what? metamorphosis right and not surprisingly it means to change in appearance that's what it means right so exactly how did jesus change in his appearance when he got up to the mount of transfiguration with those three apostles and moses and elijah showed up his body changed into that of some supernatural spiritual being it was no longer human it would be more of a glorified body as moses and elijah and he transforms into this being right and so these two patriarchs that every jew looked up to Moses and Elijah appear, and they're also in that state, and they're in the supernatural state, and they just start talking with Jesus. You talk about a powerful thing to witness. You get to see Jesus change from his normal physical form into a spiritual supernatural form, and then supernatural forms of Moses and Elijah appear, and they're just talking, right? But here's what cracks me up is Peter sees this, and they're talking, and, and Peter starts acting like classic pre, you know, pre-resurrection Peter. He starts acting like him where he was impulsive. Look at this, Matthew 17, 4. Peter said to Jesus, now remember, it sounds like he's interrupting them. They're talking. Three supernatural spiritual beings are talking. I think that's time to shut up. You know what I mean? But listen to this, 17, 4. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. I think Peter was just nervous and thought he should say something. Have you ever been in a situation like that where you just, it's awkward and nerve, you're nervous and you're like, I don't know what, maybe I should say something and usually what you say is dumb. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's kind of the same case here. He just felt like he had to say something. But, <laughs> but to suggest, to suggest that he build a tabernacle. I found this on the web, the stone, like he had to say something. <laughs> Well, I appreciate that. Thank you, Siri. Now go away. My pleasure. Speaking of supernatural, 
But anyway, <laughs> you got to have that. But anyway, I don't think Peter realized what he was saying. What he was saying was, by building a tabernacle for all three of them, it gave the appearance that all three were equal, which was not the message that God was trying to send there, that all three were equal, right? So when he said that, I mean, that's borderline blasphemy. I know he didn't mean to, but it came across that way. So uh, God the Father had to step in and kind of clarify the chain of command to them. And if you look at Matthew 17, 5 and 6, while he was still speaking, so he interrupts them and God interrupts him. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down uh, to the ground and were terrified. Okay, so Peter says, maybe I should build tabernacles for all of you. And God's going, okay. And he like has to tear this guy open and go, okay, listen to my son. That's who I sent for you to listen to. Can you imagine what the other apostles were thinking, what James and John were thinking? I mean, they were minding their own business, staying quiet like Peter should have, listening to what was going on, soaking up the experience, right? And then Peter pipes off, and God has to come down and correct him. Can you imagine him on their face going, Peter, would you shut up? What is wrong with you? You're going to get us in trouble. Sit down. You know what I mean? But it's just classic Peter. But So, I mean, that's what they were talking about. So then just as fast as they appeared, Moses and Elijah were gone. Look at Matthew 17, 7. It says, And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself. Now, people often speculate as to why God chose Moses and Elijah to meet with Jesus there. And I've heard some doozies. Okay, I've heard some doozies. Um, but one thing I can promise you, it had nothing to do with Moses and Elijah coming to earth to get the earthly scoop or to find out what was going on or to get caught up on the times. It was not about that. As a matter of fact, I don't think it had anything to do with them whatsoever. I don't think it had anything to do with Moses and Elijah. This was a supernatural occurrence designed to teach these disciples and these apostles something about Jesus. Something about Jesus, all right? Now, remember, the false teachers they were facing denied there was a second coming. Okay, they denied that. So these apostles got this reassuring glimpse of Jesus and his messianic power. By seeing this, they were confirmed that he is the Son of God. He is speaking with patriarchs that we have looked up to for centuries he is speaking with them in spiritual form, transformed into their form. Obviously, this man has messianic power. And if that weren't enough, then God audibly speaks to them and reaffirms the authority that Jesus has. So basically, just reaffirms his messianic authority right in front of them, right? And all that, saying all that, it just reassured them that if he is who he says he is, and obviously he is, I mean, he could transform himself and give advice to two of the greatest patriarchs of all time. God the Father opens up the sky to, to reinforce his identity. If he can do all that, then I'm assuming he can still keep his word, and he said he was coming back. So he's going to keep that word. He's going to come back. So another significance of Moses and Elijah, it also kind of reminded these Jews uh, of the, all the prophecies that Jesus had fulfilled. Because to the Jews, Moses and Elijah represented the law and the prophets. And a lot of Hebrew people, when they talked about the Word of God, they would call it the Law and the Prophets, the writings of the Law and the Prophets. But so those two represented the Law and the Prophets to them. Now, it's, I could get really in-depth as to why, but I'll make it pretty simple. Uh, Moses represented the Law because God sent the Law through Moses to the Hebrew nations, right? And 
The reason Elijah uh, represented the prophets was he was arguably probably the most prolific Old Testament prophet. So when they saw Elijah, they thought of prophets. When they thought, saw Moses, they thought of, of the law. So God chose Moses and Elijah to appear in order to send this really important message. And this message also reminded them of the true identity of Jesus. And that identity being the promised king, the Messiah, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. This was the message he was trying to send here. Right? So seeing these patriarchs reminded them that, hey, he did fulfill the law and the prophets, and only the Messiah can do that. Only the promised Messiah can fulfill the law. Look what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17. He said, do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Has anybody ever heard people say the Old Testament's no good anymore? That is a terrible statement. The Old Testament is very good. It's the breathed word of God. It's all good. It, but it just served its purpose. It pointed to Jesus. It gave the prophecies of the Messiah. Jesus fulfilled them. The Old Testament fulfilled its purpose. And Jesus fulfilled the ultimate purpose. Now, verse 18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until it is accomplished. All right, so this was God signifying, basically letting them see this is the end of the covenant you were raised with. There's your law. There's your prophets standing in front of you. And what are they doing? Submitting to the new covenant. Jesus. On that mountain, they got to see the baton passed. They got to see the, the baton passed from the ones they looked forward to for, or looked up to for centuries and respected and believed, and he was passing the baton to the Messiah. Now, this is what we came for, to point you to him. Now he's here. That was God reaffirming all that. Now, let's move on. Second uh, Peter 1.19. It says, so we have the prophetic word made more sure. All right, made more sure. Uh, to which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Now, when you read that, you're thinking, what? Anybody else read that and think that? There's, there's a lot there, and we're going to try to break it down, okay? When Peter, James, and John witnessed the transformation of Jesus, it confirmed a lot of things, right? But it confirmed one main thing. As I stated earlier, it was confirmation that Jesus was the promised Messiah, but it also proved that Jesus had the authority required to establish that messianic kingdom. Remember, I've told you many times, the Jews didn't think of heaven when they thought of dying. They thought of reigning in that promised messianic kingdom where the Messiah comes to earth and establishes a, a kingdom in righteousness for a thousand years. This proved to them that he had the authority to do that, right? And because of that, the claims the false teachers were saying were even further invalidated, okay? This proved that. But then next, Peter uses this imagery that's amazing, but it should be familiar, but it's amazing, about darkness and light, okay? For centuries, the Jews had endured what they considered darkness. They considered when sin was prevailing, when the world was turning away from God, they considered it darkness, okay? And they had been enduring that for centuries, right? But the one thing that kept them going was they were looking for that promised light, that Messiah that was to come into the world, and reveal all things, and take control. That's what kept them going. It was kind of like waiting through a long, dark night, eagerly waiting for the sun to come up. You ever had one of those nights where you just have a terrible night, and you're laying in bed going, I just want to get up. I want this to be over. Anybody ever been there? This is kind of what that's like. The, the, these centuries of being in a world that was turning from God was centuries of darkness where they were just going, please let the light come. Please let the daylight come so we can get out of this mess so no jesus fulfilled this messianic prophecy 
Now that he did that and the apostles were teaching it, they knew the light was on its way, right? They knew the light was on its way. And Peter wanted, you know, his, his readers to draw confidence from that. But here's how he did it. He mentions a morning star, right? A light shining in the darkness. We understand that reference. But then he talks about a morning star. See, the morning star is the planet Venus, okay? Now, Venus, they thought it was a star because, you know, they hadn't sent people into space and, you know, telescopes and they didn't have all that stuff. So they thought it was a star. But Venus is the brightest planet, and it's more visible right before dawn. It's the brightest star you can see right before dawn. Okay, that's, that's really important. I'm not going to get all weird on you with astrology. I'm just telling you. It is the, the brightest star you can see right before dawn. Right? And that morning star was an indicator that soon daylight would be here. Shepherds in their fields would see that morning star and say, it's almost daylight. Thank goodness. Been on this watch all night. Can't wait to go home. Sailors would see that morning star and say, good, we won't have to sail in darkness anymore. The daylight is coming. There's the morning star. Well, in Revelation chapter 22, Jesus referred to himself as the bright morning star. Look at this, Revelation 22, 6. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify uh, to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, and what? The bright morning star. He calls himself the bright morning star. So that imagery is being continued. See, Peter was saying that since Jesus fulfilled all the prophecy that the Messiah had to fulfill before his return, he was like the bright and morning star. He was the light right before total light come to the world. He was signifying this darkness is almost over. Okay, we are in the last phases. We're still in those phases. It proved how legitimate all his promises were because he said the bright morning star. I love this. I love this. So think about this. So Peter wanted to confirm and expound upon what they had said in chapter 8, what John had said in chapter 8 about this light. So he mentions this. John 8, 12 says, Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will what? That was lame. He who follows me will what? Not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This morning star inspired the sailors. It inspired the shepherds. And Jesus coming as the morning star, the light before the final light takes over and darkness is chased away, should have inspired believers that this world was almost done. They had endured enough. It was almost over. Just like, just like the dawn chases away the darkness, when the Son of Man returns, He'll chase away all the evil and darkness in this world, and it will be over. It will be completely over. It should be a sign that empowered them. When they heard that, they understood, I get it. Jesus was the light like the morning star. It was a light, a bright light, but it was telling us and signifying a brighter day was coming, a new day, a new dawn was rising. I just think that's awesome. That's a great comparison that he made there. Now, I love how John described that light in the darkness in chapter uh, in, one, in chapter four, uh, 1, chapter, I'm sorry, I'm choking all over myself. Chapter 1, verse 4. It said, in him, capital H, talking about Jesus, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Okay? If you don't know what this means in the Greek, it's a little confusing. Okay, so we're going to break that down for you. And John is talking about the same thing. The word comprehend in the Greek is katalambano. Okay, and it means to overcome or overpower. That's what that means. Okay, so when you replace comprehend with overpower, it changes everything. Let's look at this. 
It says, in him was life, and life was the light of men, right? Now, this is that bright morning star. Then it says, then light, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome or overpower it. This was John saying the same thing. There's a light coming. And when that light is fully manifest, darkness will never have a shot again. Darkness will be defeated. See, when the morning star came, it gave you hope of a new day, but that day was going to end and darkness was going to come again. But not Jesus, the morning star, because when he comes, that light will forever, I mean forever, run off the darkness, the evil that's in this world. It will end this, the enemy's dark reign. Now, we live in times in this world that is full of darkness. I, I mean, I hate to say this every week, but I'm astonished every day by how much worse it's getting. Now, it just blows me away. Now, I'm not that fatalist that says, you know, go build a compound and stockpile weapons and wait for the end of time. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that don't be blind to it. The morning star is up, people. The light is shining in the world. It's dawn, and it's almost time for daylight. It's almost time for the Son of God to light this world. It's almost time for him to return. But we live in a time that's so full of spiritual darkness. And the one thing that has to get us through is the same thing that got the Jews through. We have to realize that this doesn't last forever. The light that we see that's guiding us out of the darkness will soon be the only thing there is when he returns. And that should be what motivates us. I can't tell you how many times I get so frustrated. And going on social media doesn't help that, by the way. right? And looking up people's opinions on it doesn't help that. And getting involved in all the politics doesn't help that. It just makes me more mad. But when I stop for a second and pray, and when I start reading and realize this darkness is going to be gone, it will not last, no matter what party they belong to, no matter what, how much money they have, the Son of Man is coming back. We're at the twilight of the time when God is going to come back and end it all, and all his critics will be silenced. That's, that's how we're supposed to get through that. This dark isn't so threatening when you realize the day is coming. And we have to remember that. Now, all the struggles we have, remember, I don't care how bad it's getting, if you know Jesus, the day is coming when it's going to be okay. And that's something I think we have to hold on to, and that's what Peter was trying to teach them to hold on to. Now, Peter finished this section by reminding them that, uh, that truth is absolute, it's not subjective. So let's take a look at 2 Peter 1.20. He says, but know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, remember that, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Now these false teachers were trying to convince people that there was a new inspiration that they had discovered in the word. That the, what the apostles was teaching was outdated. It wasn't true. It was full of all this false hope that there was going to be a second coming. That's what they were trying to instill into the minds of of these people that Peter were writing, these believers. So Peter wanted them to know, he makes this statement to remind them, listen, there is no new revelation. There's no new revelation. For there to be new revelation would mean that God forgot some of the other stuff. That would be saying, oh yeah, well, we need new revelation because God was busy and didn't put it in the word when he inspired it the first time. You know what I mean? That is ridiculous. When people say, if you go to a church that says we have new, or you hear a teacher or a leader say, I have new inspiration from the word, yeah, run. Okay, run, because he's a false teacher, whoever that is. God gave us everything we needed to know in his word, and then he gave us the Holy Spirit to help explain it. We don't need any new revelation. How many of you guys, I'm going to date myself here, how many of you guys remember when they had the Bible code come out? 
Anybody remember that? Maybe I'm the oldest person here. Um, the Bible code came out. It was supposed to be some mystery they found in the Bible, some code that would explain secrets that God only wanted a select few who were good with numbers, I guess, to figure out. It was ridiculous, and people jumped all over it. They sold millions of books to find out the guy was a buffoon, okay? There was no Bible code. People say you got to read between the lines. Yeah, when you don't, if you read between the lines, notice it's blank paper, right? There's nothing there. This is something you have to remember. Peter was saying there's no new revelation. God gave us absolutely everything we need, and the things he gave us was not the opinions of philanthropists or wise men. It wasn't the opinions of the philosophers. This was the word of God, right? This was the word of God. Have you ever had people tell you, well, men wrote that. It's just written by men. How do you know that's true? I've, I've heard that argument time and time again. Well, this was Peter clarifying that. He's saying, you're right. It was, it was written by men who were inspired by the Almighty God who breathed into their ear truth and they recorded it, right? And when people doubt that, I say, go back and look at all the prophecies. Tell me how many of those we've seen come to pass. If men did it, they were pretty sharp, right? It wasn't men. It was men inspired by the Word of God. It was inspired by the Word of God. And listen, I love how the Apostle Paul, I love how the Apostle Paul describes this in 2 Timothy 3.16. It says, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The Apostle Paul basically said, listen, you have what it takes to be equipped to be a good worker for God, right there. You don't need to look for mysteries. You don't need to find a new path. Here it is. You don't need anything else. You've got it right there in front of you. I love, I've told you this a million times. In the Greek, it basically says, it says all scripture, which is, is pas grafe, grafe meaning scripture, uh, uh, theop means all of God's word or God inspired theop neustos meaning breathed out of so in the Greek it would be posgraphe theop neustos it means breathed from the mouth of God is what that means when he says all scripture is inspired he's saying everything you read in that book has been breathed out of the mouth of the creator of the universe that's what the, I love the Greek is much more accurate it's much more definitive than uh than the english is and when you read it in the greek it just blows you away paul was saying god breathed his words into the ears and they and they just they reported it i just think that is so amazing so when people tell you well that's your interpretation how many people have ever heard that that's how you interpret it you ever heard that drives me crazy drives me crazy that's a cop-out i've had people before they want to argue doctrine i say i will not argue doctrine with you i got better things to do than argue doctrine with you I will, however, sit down if you are willing to make the word of God the final authority, and we will see what the word of God says about it, because there is one interpretation. We just got to find it. There's not two. There's not three. There's one. God didn't, wasn't absent-minded. You know, he knew exactly what he wanted to say, and he said it. The only reason that people don't want to sit down and do that is they're steeped in tradition. They were raised a certain way, and they want to keep that tradition, and they don't want to find out that that tradition was wrong. Right? I went through the most life-transforming thing when I became a Christian because I was raised in some crazy stuff. And I didn't want to let go of that stuff. And when I started reading the Bible and realized how deceived I was, it knocked me over. It leveled me. And I wished I'd have read it earlier. Same thing here. He's saying, listen, there are no new revelation. There's, those false teachers are just using cleverly devised fables to try to distract you. They're sent from the enemy to keep you confused about the word of God because you're already a believer. He can't take that from you, but what he can do is keep you so distracted with his lies that you never do anything good for anybody else. 
That's what Peter was trying to teach him. Avoid those people at all costs. Okay, I'm going to close there. We'll pick up there next week. If you would, please bow your heads. If this is your first time, we always like to give an invitation. And by that, I mean we just want the opportunity to pray for you. We don't want people to come down front and all that. We're not doing that. But we do know that there are times that people need prayer. Maybe you're not sure where you stand with God. Whatever the case may be, I don't need to know. But if you'd like me to pray for you, make eye contact with me. Put your head right back down. Bless those people. Bless those people. And I'll be praying for you. And I do pray for you. Bless those people. If you're watching and listening online, God knows your heart. I'll be praying for you. But I tell you today, my heart is so heavy. When I read this, first I, I, you know, I kind of felt ashamed. Because I allowed the struggles in this world to become mine. When, realistically, I don't have to worry about a thing. I'm a child of the king. I am promised to be with him forever. I'm promised to have a great reunion with everyone that died before me that believed. I don't want to get so absorbed with this world that it changes who I am. And I'm going to pray as believers we don't allow that to happen to us. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for all that you do. We thank you for your love. We thank you, God, that you sent your son to die on our behalf because we would have never been good enough. We could have never made the appropriate sacrifice. We couldn't be, have the greatest reputation. There was nothing we had to trade for the great gift of eternal life. Only your son could attain that for us. And we thank you so much, Jesus, that you died on that cross for us and rose again. And we thank you that your word promises that if we believe that what you did was enough, we could have eternal life. You'd give it to us. So if there's someone here who doesn't know you and they may be held back by doctrines or whatever it may be, just clear their mind and let them know you died for them just like they are. And if they can believe, you'll give them eternal life. And if they, if they make that decision, I pray they contact us. But for those of us who are believers, God, give us a steely focus to stop thinking about everything that's going on around us and focus on that morning star. God, it doesn't matter who the world thinks is in control. We know you are. Let us remember that before we let the events of this world make us into bitter, angry people. Instead, make us be reflections of that bright morning star so that people see your light and hope in us and through us might come to you. God, we just pray as we leave here, you would keep us safe. And if, if you don't return to take us home before we meet again, we just pray that we would come together one more time and give you all the praise, honor, and glory so worthy of. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.